So joining me today on the podcast is Dr Jeremy Cohen. Uh, Jeremy is a staff specialist in intensive care at the Royal Brisbane Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Jeremy started uh, his training in the UK and has qualifications in medicine, anaesthesia and in intensive care. Um, Jeremy's research interests have included adrenal function in critical illness and he's undertaking a PhD in this area. As well as his research interests, Jeremy also spends time as a uh, fellowship examiner for the College of Intensive Care Medicine and has an interest in simulation training. And I'm very pleased to have him on the podcast with me today. Thanks for joining me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Now, the, the area that I wanted to explore with you was on the area of, uh, of steroids. And it sounds like we've had a fascination with steroids for many years in intensive care. I wonder whether you could just review some of the history of that. something that you mentioned there about the the concept of a lower dose it seems that you know the number of entities have been described over the last few years to describe this with relative adrenal insufficiency and critical illness related corticosteroid deficiency and so on what what are these syndromes and, and where does the, the current definition and understanding of this lie Adrenal insufficiency. I think the concept's flaw. 
say. The idea, I think, is it, it, it was initially quite quite sensible and quite plausible. So the concept is is that you know when we look at people who are exposed to various degrees of stress, um, you know, be it you know initially you know um, minor trauma or um, you know, laparotomies or cardiac surgery, and you and you measure the cortisol, you see see that the the cortisol that people produce in in response to stress becomes larger and larger. There's, there's a, a greater response, and so it was seemed to be suggested you now and, and, and a reasonable suggestion that well you know if you're exposed to a, a greater trauma, you need to produce more cortisol in order to respond. And again, certainly you know um, people you know animal studies where they, you know you have um, removed the adrenals, uh, these animals when exposed to sepsis you know uniformly die. And so the idea of sort of I guess relative adrenal insufficiency came about because um, people thought well you know if you're exposed to sepsis, which is this huge stress, and you don't produce enough cortisol, so you're not getting up to you know whatever you should be, then you might be at higher risk of dying. So that was really I think you know the original concept of relative adrenal insufficiency that you know we're not producing perhaps enough cortisol that we should be for the degree of stress to which you're exposed. And the problem with that as a concept is if you think about it as a theory, as a hypothesis, um, it generates a very simple prediction. And that prediction should be that in, in patients with septic shock then, those patients whose cortisols are at the lower range, you know, still elevated above normal, but you know, lower range, should have a higher mortality because they're not getting their cortisols up to, to what they should be. The problem though is when you look at patients with septic shock and cortisol, you find the opposite. You find that in fact those patients with higher cortisols have higher mortalities and you can't really demonstrate that patients with kind of lower cortisols are doing worse. So that's kind of a problem for the, for the theory. And what subsequently transpired was that people started doing you know, this ACTH stimulation test on patients with sepsis. This is a standard endocrinological test. You um, stun, you know, usually an endocrinological outpatients to examine adrenal function. You give um, a dose, usually 250 micrograms of a synthetic ACTH, and you measure what the cortisol does. You stress the adrenal glands. And when you do that in patients with sepsis, which we know was demonstrated for a while, but you know, primarily by a nun, um, you see that those pe people who've got a lower response, so the response um, we know a number of threshold levels, but, but under 250 is currently accepted, they seem to do worse. <clears throat> so you have this association with a, a poor response to synthetic ACTH and outcome. And that's really been the, the cornerstone of this definition initially the, of, of so-called relative adrenal insufficiency. And this is the, the what Anand defined as responders and non-responders? That's right. The problem, I guess, with it is that, you know, are we looking at something that's actually contributing to the poor mortality, or is this simply a marker of patients who are under a, a high degree of stress? So how do you really interpret doing a stress response in a situation where, you know, the organism is already under a great deal of stress because they're, you know, they're, they've got septic shock? And I think, you know, this is where a lot of the controversy lies. There's been lots of you know, people look at this and there's been lots of suggested cutoffs and thresholds which are associated with mortality. But the underlying problem is, you know, is this really something that's actually contributing to mortality or is it just uh, a correlate? Um, and I don't think that question's really been answered. Um, and, and there are problems with using this, this, this threshold, the kind of response, rather than, if you like, the peak of cortisol. So, for example, you know, in, in, a, in a standard endocrinological outpatients, they don't use the threshold. They don't use how much the cortisol rises by as an outcome because it's been shown not to be very, um, uh, not to be very reliable. You know, I 
um, if you take just normal people, you know, you and I, and you give us um, uh, an ACTH test, we all hopefully, if we're, if we're functioning, will raise our peak cortisols up to about 500 or 550. But a proportion of us won't have a will have a um, a threshold level that's you know, less than 250, less than the cutoff. Now, in clinical practice and a lot of the research that has been done, um, the, the available testing has been total cortisol. And I know that you've been, uh, you've written about this. There's, a, there's not a clear relationship between total and free cortisols. Yes, that's another kind of um, problematic area, I guess. Uh, you know, total cortisol um, you know, circulates the majority bound to corticosteroid binding globulin and some bound to albumin. And usually it's about only a small percentage bound. tests aren't available commercially, are they? I haven't seen total, uh, sorry, free cortisol available. seem to end there, do they, Jeremy? That further down the chain there's there's other issues such as free interstitial uh, cortisol levels and even uh, intracellular levels. Yeah, exactly. So it all gets um, depressingly complicated. So recently you know, the, 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 the term sort of um, relative adrenal insufficiency has been superseded by this new term um, corticost uh, critical inoculated corticosteroid insufficiency, what they call CERCI. Um, and I guess clear, I think, how different that is from the previous idea, from the previous concept. Um, but this is trying to get the, bring in the um, issue that, you know, in critical Ill, critical Ill patients, we've got this concept of glucocorticoid resistance, that um, the cortisol isn't really acting in the tissues in, in the way that it should be doing. And again, you know, this again is very plausible. Um, certainly, you know, lots of other conditions, you know, people with asthma, people with irritable bowel disease can actually get this tissue steroid unresponsiveness. 
there's no doubt that that exists. Um, but when you look at critically ill patients, we can see there's all sorts of different things going on in the change in, in cortisol metabolism. So as you mentioned, for example, um, there's this set of enzymes inside the cell that kind of um, activate and inactivate cortisol by changing it back and forth to cortisone. And so these, these appear to be um, changed in critical illness, and that seems to be that you can actually generate intracellular cortisol in some, in some tissues during sepsis. So you might have, you know, you might be measuring the plasma cortisol, um, but what's actually happening, happening in the cells may not reflect that. You also get changes in the um, activity and the function of the glucocorticoid receptors, and they can be, um, you know, have a decreased effect. So it looks like there's all sorts of really quite complicated changes going on at the tissue level that aren't being reflected by measuring the plasma cortisol level. And again, you know, what effect these have is really unclear. So we don't really have a good way of measuring, if you like, tissue glucocorticoid activity at the moment. And we certainly haven't been able to reflect, you know, to, to relate that to outcome. So, you know, does, you know, do we get increased glucocorticoid resistance in sepsis? I don't know, you know, quite possibly. How does that affect outcome? Nobody knows. So it's all very speculative, um, but it does increasingly point towards the fact that, you know, when you measure a cortisol, a total cortisol, in a, in a patient with septic shock, what does that mean? And I, I'm not convinced that actually gives you very useful information unless it's just astronomically low. And this is what you've referred to, I think, as uh, the cortisol cascade failure, I think. Is that... That's right, yeah. So the, the idea here is, 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 you know, you've got total cortisol in, in, in plasma, and then you've got free cortisol in plasma, and then that free cortisol moves into the interstitium. And there in the interstitium, various things can change. And then it goes from the interstitium into the cytoplasm, where it's effect, no, acted on by these different enzymes. And then it goes, then it binds with um, the glucocorticoid receptor and goes into the nucleus. And at all those steps, you know, the steps from total to free to interstitial to intracellular, things seem to be happening that in, in, in sepsis and septic shock that, that, that are different from the normal resting state. And all of those things can significantly influence the final action of, of the cortisol. And we really have a, a very poor handle on, on what those changes are and, and how to measure them. So making, you know, just simply looking at, the, if you like, the very top of the cascade, just the plasma cortisol, you know, how much information we can glean from that, I think, is, is unclear. It would be nice if we could measure that final step, as you said. Is there anything on the horizon in that regard? Um, yeah, we're looking at a couple of things of doing that. So there's an assay that um, the guys in chemical pathology here at the Royal Brisbane actually have, have, have developed, which looks at um, sort of stimulating... Um,
sounds like we've still got a long way to go. Oh, yeah, I think, it, I think trying to understand this at a second level is it's very complicated. Um, and I, I agree entirely, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of work to be done. Can I branch to something, another concept that you've raised in recent times, and that's of the CQ adrenal. Mm. I was just wondering whether you could explain that term. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's kind of analogous, if you like, to the idea of you know, the CQ thyroid, where we see these sort of changes in the acute illness um, in patients in their thyroid hormone levels. And, you know, and as you recall, there were studies looking at actually you know, replacing thyroid hormone in, in um, IC patients and actually you know, have poor outcomes. And the idea really seems to be that what we're looking at is, is not a true deficiency, um, but really, you know, if you like, a, a change in the various um, in, in underlying physiology of these of, uh, and metabolism of these hormones that are just reflective of the underlying um, status of the patient. And that what I guess we're, we're trying to say is, is that you know you, you look at these cortisol levels; um, they're different from normal, but of the um, changes that are happening in the, in the physiology of, of, of steroids, you know, you can't really interpret them as, as, as indicating insufficiency, and they shouldn't necessarily be taken as an indication that the patient needs replacement cortisol and replacement hydrocortisone, and they're really they're just reflective of, you know, of the changes going on as part of the uh, part of the illness as a whole. I guess extrapolating from that analogy, then uh, you said that thyroid hormone had not been shown to be of any effect. Um, has that same uh, conclusion been drawn on steroids? Yeah, that's the uh, really little question, isn't it? So, yeah, it, as you know, it's hugely controversial. Um, we've got the, the two major studies, I think, you know, in the field of, uh, of steroids and, and sepsis, with, they're using the kind of, like, the, the lower dose would be, the, you know, the anon and corticus. And I think they both had um, significant issues. Some people very strongly believe that, yes, you should be using steroids, um, and other people very strongly believe that you shouldn't, um, or that the evidence is it, it doesn't allow you to do so. And I don't think we're going to have an answer um, until we do uh, another trial. Um, you know, my personal feeling is, no, I'm not convinced by the NAND study. I think it had a lot of, um, a lot of flaws, and I don't think we can really be confidently saying we should be giving our patients with, with septic shock steroids. Uh, but, you know, there are other people who disagree. I believe you're looking into this in some way in a, a large-scale trial, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, that's, um, so this is under you know, the ANZIC CTG group, um, and we were you know, very um, happy recently to get you know, a, a significant NHMRC grant. So um, we're in the process of just going to be starting recruiting, hopefully, uh, this year for what will be um, a, a large-scale trial in the, in the sort of pragmatic clinical trial in the style of, um, you know, NICE and... Um, and safe to try and look at this question. So we're, we're planning to um, recruit uh, over 3,500 patients with septic shock and um, randomise them either to steroid or not steroid. Uh, and that will be um, certainly the largest trial of its kind carried out and hopefully will give us um, some kind of an answer. Is that going to be determined on uh, responsiveness and non-responsiveness? No. So this is, um, we won't be using um, uh, ACTH testing. Yeah. Uh,
One of the questions that's come from those previous trials, Jeremy, is the role of fluid recortisone in all of this. Mm. Are you going to include that as part of your regimen? No, we're not going to be using fluid recortisone. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an odd sort of thing. As you say, in the original trial, uh, the French trial in 2004, did use fluid recortisone. And the problem with fluid recortisone uh, is that it doesn't make a great deal of sense to include it because of the doses of, of, of hydrocortisone that you're giving that actually has mineralocorticoid activity as much as fluid recortisone. In fact, cortisol binds to the mineralocorticoid receptor with more avidity than does um, fluid recortisone. So you should be getting more than enough um, mineralocorticoid activity if that's important um, with the hydrocortisone. And then subsequently there's been a trial um, uh, last year uh, that actually looked at this. Um, this was a, another trial by Anand where they did a, a, a sort of two-by-two two bactorial design trial of um, intensive insulin therapy and fludrocortisone in patients with sepsis. Uh, and there were a lot of problems with that trial, but certainly from the fludrocortisone side, they didn't show any difference at all between those patients who did or didn't get fludrocortisone. So there certainly doesn't seem to be um, much reason, I think, to be, be using fludrocortisone. And the majority of people who do Yeah, gotcha. I guess one of the best ways to summarise all of this is to find out what an expert in the field would do in, in their clinical practice. What are your real-world indications for steroids in intensive care? In, in setting a septic shock? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I'm not a routine user of steroids in septic shock. Um, the kind of, t I guess, the questions or the times it kind of comes up and people will think about it, usually, I, I suspect, is when you know, the, the anotropes are going up and the presses are going up and the, the, there's no response. Um, I think what I tend to do is, is, first of all, you know, you have to make sure that you're happy that you've got the diagnosis right. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's in shock and is not responding to um, adrenaline and adrenaline, you know, are you happy that, for example, they don't have additants? So I think it's, it's very reasonable, you know, if you're suspecting that or suspecting, for example, they might, you know, have bled into their adrenal glands or something to do a cortisol level. Yeah. opportunity to talk to you and uh, tease out some of these elements of steroids. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Oh, look, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for asking me. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au. 